A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. Last week we took a brief look at the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. Today we're looking at the fourth book, the book of Numbers. It's the fourth book in the five books of Moses. So it's the fourth book in the Bible. Uh, First five books of Moses, first five books of the Bible. Or the only five books of Moses, I guess. By the way, this might be a good time, I think, to just get a little bit of biblical backgrounds information here about these books. The Jews call these first five books normally the Torah. The Hebrew word means instructions, Torah, books of the law. It's also pretty common to hear them call it the Pentateuch, which is a Greek word that means the five scrolls. That makes sense. Originally, they were written on five scrolls. The Jews call their entire Bible, which, of course, they don't include the New Testament, so it just would correspond to our Old Testament, but they call their Bible the Tanakh, Tanakh. And that word Tanakh actually comes from an acronym, which comes from the three divisions of what we call the Old Testament. So for them, anyway, the way they divide it. So the T in Tanakh stands for the word Torah, which includes the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The N in the word Tanakh comes from the word Nevi'im, or the prophets, the Hebrew word for prophets. But they classify the books differently from the way we normally do. They separate the Nevi'im into three groups, and the first group they call the former prophets. That would include Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. We usually call those books Old Testament history books. And then they have what they call the latter prophets, and they include their Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, those what we call the really longer prophets, the major prophets, some of them. And the third group would be what they call the minor prophets, which they consider to just be one book with 12 different authors. But it's the exact same thing as what we call the minor prophets, the 12 final books of our Old Testament, the last 12 books. By the way, they're called minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're short little books. They're, they're brief compared to the major prophets. And then the, the last letter in Tanakh, the K, comes from the word ketuvim, which is the Hebrew word for writings. And those books include Psalms, Proverbs, Job, another group called the Five Scrolls. They call it the Five Scrolls. It's, it's five short books, the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther they put in that group. Interestingly, the ketuvim also includes Daniel. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Daniel is not included with the prophets in the Jewish Bible. And as I understand it, and I'm not claiming to be a great scholar here about these things, but I think the Jews consider the Ketuvim 
the writings to be the least authoritative of all of their scriptures or the least significant part of the Tanakh. Now, I can't prove what I'm about to say, and I could be wrong about it. But when you see Daniel relegated to the lesser important books instead of put with the prophets, you know, we put Daniel in with the major prophets, don't we? You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. <laughs> but but uh, Daniel's moved out of that group. And, and as I understand it, this happened after the first century A.D., and at least makes, it makes sense to me that possibly the powerful prophecies in Daniel that point to Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, there's some really, one in particular, awesome prophecy. We talk about it in our uh, Veritas series. But anyway, uh, that may be why they relegated it to kind of take some attention away from Daniel. I don't know. So the book of Numbers is the fourth book of the first group of books, the Torah in the Tanakh, uh, the, the, the Pentateuch, the fourth book of the first five books. And this might be a good time just to do a little quick overview of these first five books of Moses. So let's, let's think about what they are, what's there just for a few minutes. First one's Genesis, of course, covers the time interval from the creation to about 1800 BC when Joseph died. The word Genesis is from the Greek and it means beginning or origin. You probably knew that. Second scroll is called Exodus, second book of the Bible. And the biggest part of the book of Exodus covers about a year of time, around 1,450 years before Jesus was born, around 1450 B.C. A good guess for the date for the birth of Moses, probably around 1530 B.C. Exodus probably began about 1450 B.C. And the word Exodus is, again, from the Greek, and it means the road out. Exodus takes us up to Mount Sinai where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the pattern for the tabernacle, and we've looked at that in previous weeks. The third book we looked at last week, Leviticus, that covered only about a month of time right after the Exodus, so we could date it the same year, 1450 B.C. And, of course, Leviticus has all these laws for sacrifices and the priesthood and cleanliness and purity and holiness code laws, sacrificial laws, some civil laws, moral laws, all kinds of laws. The word Leviticus itself is a Latin word, not Greek, but it comes from a Greek word, luidikon, and, and luidikon means coming from the tribe of Levi. That kind of makes sense, too. The rabbis tended to call it the law of priests because so many of the laws in it related to the priests. Moses wrote it while they were still in camp there at Mount Sinai. And then, of course, the book of Numbers is fourth, and it picks up in the second year after they'd come out of Egypt, covers about 38 years of their journey. The reason for the name of the book is that when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, that would be a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, maybe you know 200 B.C. roughly, the translators called it Numbers because of the census. You know, when you start reading it, the first thing you come to is the census is described in the first part of the book. The Greek word, by the way, is arithmos. Arithmos, does that sound familiar? It's where we get our word arithmetic or arithmetic, depending on how you're using that word. The fifth book in the books of Moses, uh, the Torah, Deuteronomy, literally means second law. And it's mainly a series of three speeches with some appendices at the end, but some speeches that Moses gives the Israelites very near the end of his life, just before the Israelites, led by Joshua, going into the promised land. And it's called second law, Deuteronomy, because Moses essentially repeats a whole lot of the law that he had already given 
in Exodus and Leviticus here in Deuteronomy. But today we're numbers. And by the way, the Jews did not call it numbers. <laughs> the Hebrew title for the book is In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness. And I don't know about you, and you don't have to agree with me about this, but I think it's kind of a shame that we don't call it by that same name, In the Wilderness. And that sounds kind of interesting, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Think about it. If you knew absolutely nothing about the Bible, let's say you're totally Bible illiterate, you've never heard about the Bible, you've never known about the Bible, and you pick it up, and you open it up, and you look at the contents, which would be just a list of the books of the Bible, right? When you got down to the fourth one, would you be more likely to turn to a, a book named Numbers? Or a book named In the Wilderness. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're not like me. I think for a lot of people, the word numbers, though, kind of brings back some memories of their least favorite books of all. Math books, <laughs> algebra books, geometry books. You know, it's, it sounds to say to turn to numbers is about as exciting as hearing a teacher say, okay, turn to page 105 in your algebra text and let's start this next section. <laughs> now, now, I'm a math teacher <laughs> and that doesn't sound too bad to me, but I think for most people, it sounds a little bit like a beginning of a nightmare or something. It doesn't sound very attractive. In the wilderness sounds kind of exciting to me, like an adventure of some kind, don't you think? And it is exciting. There's a lot of adventure in this book. Of course, the wilderness isn't the destination. We know that's not where God was leading the people. He's leading them through the wilderness to the promised land. So it's toward their destination, promised land of Israel. So in this book, we learn how God's people got to this wilderness, how God dealt with them while they were there, how God brought them out of the wilderness on towards the promised land. One way of looking at the events of this book is to see it as a book in which God's taking a people who've gotten very used to slavery. Remember, they'd been slaves all their lives in Egypt. That's all they'd known is a life of slavery. They'd never been free. But now God's preparing them to learn how to live as free men. He's, he's preparing them for the promised land. It's a big change. The Israelites have had Egyptian taskmasters up until now. They were always told what to do. They were told how to do it. They were told when to do it. They were driven by an evil tyrant. They were slaves. Now they needed to learn to adjust to freedom. They were no longer slaves of Pharaoh. They were people of God. They're free. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have an owner. They don't have a boss. God himself, of course, is their owner and their boss. He's their God. He's their Lord. But as we learn, when we turn our lives over to God through our Lord Jesus, there's always a wonderful freedom that comes when we learn to submit to and love God as our creator and our owner and our possessor, and God the Son is the one who died for our sins and paid for our sins so that we could be part of God's family. It's, it's wonderful freedom, even though we are, in a sense, servants and slaves of God himself. Still freedom. It's kind of like a freedom a train has when it stays on the track. You know what I'm saying? In the first 10 chapters of Numbers, we find the Israelites still camped at the base of Mount Sinai. At the end of chapter 10, they begin to move away from Mount Sinai, led, of course, by God himself. We learn in chapter 1, God instructed them to take a census, and it was for military purposes. He's giving them instructions for getting them organized. God loves organization. You can't miss that when you study his word. He's a God of organization. He's a God of order. In chapter 2, he organizes them around the tabernacle. In chapter 3, he organized the priests and the Levites. In chapter 4, he gave specific responsibilities to the priests and the Levites. In chapter 5, he gives them instructions for dealing with different kinds of uncleanness. 
He also gave them instructions for handling jealousy and suspicions of adultery in a marriage. Chapter 6, he gave instructions for the Nazarite vow. Fascinating. At the end of chapter 6, God gave them these wonderful words to use as a benediction. And it's very beautiful and it's very familiar. Let's look at them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? We still use it today, don't we? You've probably heard it. Chapter 7 records the generous gifts that were given for the service, work, and upkeep of the tabernacle. Chapter 8 tells about the arrangement of the lampstand, instructions for the cleansing and dedication of the Levites. And then the first 14 verses of chapter 9 describe the first celebration of the Passover after they left Egypt. Remember, they left on the Passover, right the day after Passover, first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that would make it the one-year anniversary of the Exodus. Rest of chapter 9 tells us how God led them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In the first part of chapter 10, he tells us about two silver trumpets. Two silver trumpets. They had several uses. They were used to call assemblies. They were used to gather leaders together. They were used to tell the people to move forward. They were used to tell the people it was time to go to war. They were used to celebrate feasts, new moons. They were used many, many other times, sometimes just to express joy and gladness. Blew the trumpets. Interestingly, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, God tells us that there will be seven trumpets that will sound during the time of God's outpoured wrath on the earth, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Each trumpet is going to announce a new phase of his wrath on the kingdom of the Antichrist. The New Testament also tells us that Jesus will return and the dead will be raised at the last trump. Remember that? He'll call us up together in a way that Moses used the trumpets to call the Israelites together with a sound of a trumpet. Pretty awesome. Interesting comparison. In chapter 10, verses 11 through 28, the cloud moves out. Now they're beginning the ordered, highly organized march toward the promised land. Then in verses 29 through 32, we learn that Moses made an appeal for a man named Hobab, one of the more obscure guys in Scripture. We don't hear much about Hobab because there's not much about him. But he was a son of Ruel, and Ruel remembers another name for Jethro. That was Zipporah's dad, therefore it was Moses' father-in-law. And, and he, so Hobab would have been Moses' brother-in-law, and he's, he's begging Hobab, stay with us. We could, you could really be of use to us. He thought, this, this was, Hobab was very familiar with this part of the wilderness. And, and Moses thought, if you're with us, it'll help us as we go along. You'll know kind of what we should expect and what we should watch out for and those kind of things. So this is interesting because Moses knew God was leading them directly. God was working directly with Moses and, and he was leading them. He didn't need Hobab. But at the same time, Moses recognized the wisdom of having counsel from a man who knew this area, knew this territory, men of wisdom and understanding. Even in those days when God was leading them directly, he was still working through human beings too. And getting wise counsel from wise brothers and sisters has always been an important biblical principle. I hope you understand that and you do it because we, we need each other. God intended it to be that way. He's built us that way. And yes, we can get wisdom from God, and he promises to give us wisdom, but often he gives it through the counsel of others. Now, it seemed valuable to Moses to have Hobab go with him, but at first, Hobab said, I don't think so. I don't think I want to get into this. He wanted to stay with his own people there in Midian, but 
it, without, we're not really told exactly what happened at that point, but Moses apparently convinced him to go with them because later on in the book of Judges, we read some about Hobab's descendants. So it's kind of an interesting character. One more interesting thing in chapter 10 is in verses 33 through 36. When the cloud and the ark moved out, when God was telling him it's time to move, Moses prayed the same prayer every time, kind of like a ritual. Every time they started to move out, when it was time to move out, he prayed this prayer. Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. (laughs) Isn't that a good prayer? Sounds like a good prayer to me. A few hundred years later, the Holy Spirit inspired David to pick up this prayer. And he, and he sang it and, and, he, and put it in Psalm 68. Look at this. Let God arise. His enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a spiritual warfare prayer. You see that, don't you? And, and we used to sing a monotonous little chorus, but it's a great little chorus. You may have heard it before based on this verse. If you know it, sing it with me. Just look at the words. You, you know, I don't have to put any more words up there. It's right out of the first part of that verse. Let God arise, his enemies be scattered. Let God arise, his enemies be scattered. Let God arise, his enemies be scattered. Let God, let God arise. Yeah, it's a great little spiritual warfare song. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you're about to do some spiritual warfare, Satan hates that stuff. God loves it. Let God arise, his enemies be scattered. When it's time to stop and rest, Moses prayed another ritual prayer, an evening prayer, and it was this, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So it's kind of like Moses is praying, if you want to read between the lines a little bit here, okay, Lord, you, you've created us, you know we have to have rest, and I know you don't need rest, Lord, you don't need sleep, but we're asking you to watch over us and stay here with us while we rest, and of course God did. That's a beautiful prayer to end the day. So for these first chapters of the book of Numbers, the Israelites have been camped at Mount Sinai. Moses has already gone up on the mountain, gotten the Ten Commandments and the pattern for the tabernacle. We learn about that, of course, in Exodus. The tabernacle has been constructed. That's in Exodus. A lot of the laws, those recorded in Leviticus, have already been given. Now they're moving out on their way to the Promised Land. And I have some pictures here that I hope will help you visualize where they are and what's happening along the way. What you see right now is simply a modern-day map of a large part of the Middle East as it is today. So you can see Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and Egypt there. Here's the Red Sea. Here's the Sinai Peninsula, bounded on the west side by the Gulf of Suez, on the east side by the Gulf of Aqaba. Both those gulfs, of course, are part of the Red Sea. Here's Israel's starting point, the region of Egypt called Goshen, where they lived when they were slaves. And here's their destination, Israel promised land. Now let's zoom in on this region of the map that's in that rectangle you see there. Here we go. So here's the Gulf of Suez still and the Gulf of Aqaba. We're just zoomed in in the Sinai Peninsula. So in the book of Exodus, we read of their leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, about two months time reaching Mount Sinai in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula where they remain in camp for a year. Now, at the end of chapter 10, they're moving out from Sinai. So with that background, let's kind of walk our way through some more of the book of Numbers. The first three verses of chapter 11 tell us that the people began to, guess what? Complain. He doesn't even tell us here what they're complaining about. It was just part of their pattern. Uh, This becomes a pattern for them all the way through. And God sends 
fire and kills some of them until Moses intercedes. Verse 4 mentions the mixed multitude. Uh, Exodus 28 tells us that when they went out from Egypt, there was a mixed multitude. A mixed multitude also went up with them. Very much livestock, flocks, and herds, but a mixed multitude. And we're not absolutely sure who the mixed multitude might be referring to. Could be referring to some Egyptians who really weren't Israelites, but they decided that the God of the Israelites was the true God, possible, at least greater than the gods of the Egyptians. Could be some Egyptians that really weren't so much interested in worshiping the true God as hanging on to the Israelites because they seemed to be winning this thing. I mean, Egypt had almost been destroyed. And, of course, there were also a lot of Israelites who didn't really have true faith in God. They were Israelites by biological descent, but they may have been included as mixed multitudes, spiritually speaking, anyway. Anyhow, these people led the complaint, and the other Israelites joined in. Now, the rabble, that's the ESV term for mixed multitude, that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Now our strength is dried up. There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. (laughs) So they're griping about this amazing food that God was providing. They want meat. They want fish. They're craving it. They're greedy for it. They want cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. And at first we might think, boy, it's amazing how, how faulty their memories are. Instead of remembering the pain and misery of their slavery, they're remembering the smells and tastes of the food they used to enjoy. But listen, there's a warning here for all of us. We need to be very slow to trust our memories. <laughs> and as you get older, you start realizing that more and more, I hope. <laughs> But some of the biggest disagreements that Vicki and I have had in our marriage are over conflicting memories. One of us, well, this is the way it happened. No, 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 no. No, no, no. It wasn't that way at all. <laughs> and then I'm thinking while she's talking, surely it isn't my memory that's at fault here. It's got to be her memory, right? <laughs> can you identify with this at all? Our memories deceive us. Our memories can lie to us. <laughs> Our conversations probably go a little better if we can just remember. And sometimes we do remember to start saying, well, this is my memory, but I know my memory can't always be trusted, but this is what I remember. (laughs) Sometimes the conversation will go a little better. But it's really hard, isn't it? We feel so certain. Well, their memories certainly couldn't be trusted. That's for sure. In verses 10 through 15, Moses goes into his own kind of depression as a result of all these complaints of the Israelites. And in verse 11, he essentially asked God, what did I do to deserve this, Lord? These people are driving me nuts. Look look at it. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? (laughs) He's pretty miserable. And in verse 15, we see how deep his depression was. Lord, I've had enough. Why don't you just go ahead and kill me? Take me out of my misery. That's what he's saying. If you'll treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. (laughs) Poor Moses. We can laugh now, but at the time it had to seem pretty awful. And God has pity on Moses. In verse 16 and 17, God takes some of the burden off of Moses. He told Moses, I want you to pick 70 wise, faithful men out of the Israelites, who can help you carry the burden. That was wonderful. That was a real blessing from God. We all need that, don't we? We need wise, faithful people in our lives to help 
carry some of our burdens. It's part of why God gives us brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you name yours? If you can't, you know, if, if you're not thinking of a name right now while I'm talking about this, you, you, I would really encourage you to, and maybe more than one name, by the way, maybe several names, but I'd really encourage you to make that into a prayer request. Lord, I need faithful brothers and sisters to give me wise counsel to help me carry my burdens. We need that. We all need that. In verses 18 through 20, God promises to provide meat for Israel. They're greedy. They're selfish. They're demanding. They're whining and griping. But he said, I'll, I'll provide meat. And Moses thought about that for a little bit and said, basically, Lord, that's a lot of meat. I don't see where so much meat could possibly come from out here in this wilderness. And he, he reminds the Lord there's 600,000 soldiers alone to feed. You know what that reminds us of? Are you thinking of something in the New Testament? Jesus said, the disciples said, you're going to have to send these people away. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. <laughs> what do you want us to do? <laughs> but of course, Jesus is getting ready to feed the 5,000. Remember that? Very similar kind of situation. Verses 24 through 30, we read how the Spirit of God came upon the 70 elders, these men that God had given Moses to help him carry the burden. His Holy Spirit came on them. And, and he had told them to come to the tabernacle, and only 68 out of the 70 had gathered at the tabernacle. But God's Spirit came on all 70 of them, even the two who were still in the camp who had not made it to the tabernacle. And that bugged Joshua. Joshua wanted Moses to tell him to stop prophesying. You weren't even here at the tabernacle. <laughs> and it reminds us again a little bit of something in the New Testament. You remember when John tried to stop a man from casting out demons in Jesus' name because he wasn't going around with them? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Don't try to stop him. He's on our side. He's one of us, John. You may not know him. You may not be familiar with him. But God's using him. <laughs> So in the same way, Moses said the same thing. No, we're not going to stop them, Joshua. In fact, he said, I wish the whole nation could be filled with God's spirit like this. I believe there's another lesson for us here, too. There are times when God works through Christians who are not like us. <laughs> They're different. And we need to be really careful. We need to realize sometimes we're not the ones in charge. God is. They're not our servants. They're his servants. And if he chooses to work through others who are not exactly like us, well, that's his business, right? I mean, who am I to criticize? Now, obviously, if they're teaching heresy, if they're teaching bad doctrine, or if they're pretending that sin is not sin or something like that, we have to tell the truth about them. But if they get it basically right about who Jesus is, and they get it right about the gospel and the word of God, you know, and they're not rationalizing, excusing sin and stuff like that, they're God's kids. And we may disagree about some issues, but we need to praise the Lord for them if he's using them, even if we don't understand why he's doing it. We might say, Lord, I don't know why you would use them instead of us. <laughs> well, he's God. He decides. We need to be rejoicing when God's using his people, even if they're not like us. Verses 31 through 35, God kept his word and sent millions and millions and millions of quail into the camp. And the people caught huge amounts of them. But God did not reward their greed. He showed them he was able to do this mighty miracle. But they were selfish. They were griping. They were complaining. And he makes an example of them. And many of them died while they were eating the quail. They buried them there. And they named that place Kibroth Hata'avah, which literally means graves of lust. They were lusting after the meat. They were sinning. And they died. It's right about here on the map. Chapter 11 ends with them moving from Kibroth Kata'avah to a place called Hazaroth. 
Hazaroth. See it there? And they're moving on towards the promised land towards the north now. See the promised land south of the screen there. In chapter 12, we learned that Moses had married an Ethiopian woman. We're not exactly sure what that means either. It could have been that Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, had died and Moses had remarried this Ethiopian woman. It could mean that Moses took this Ethiopian woman as a second wife. It's also possible that the Ethiopian woman was Zipporah herself. Some speculate that Jethro had migrated to Midian from Ethiopia. In any case, Miriam and Aaron had a problem with it. But the rest of the chapter makes clear God didn't have a problem with it. Very obvious. So in verse 2, they challenge Moses' authority. Again, they're saying, hey, God's going to speak through us too, you know. And the implication was Moses had exalted himself too high. But it wasn't Moses exalting himself, you see. They didn't quite get it yet, even though it was Moses' brother and sister. God was the one who'd chosen Moses. God was the one who put Moses in he at the head of all this people. Verse 3 in this passage is a little bit difficult for us. Look at it. The man Moses was very meek, oh, King James says humble, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. And when we first look at this verse, we tend to think, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If Moses is the one writing this, it makes him sound anything but humble. <laughs> I mean, if I were to say to you, I want you guys to know that I am a very humble guy. In fact, I don't think there's anybody in the world more humble than I am. <laughs> well, the one thing I'm definitely not being at that moment is humble, right? right? And, and so that's why some scholars say, well, God must have used somebody else to write this. Maybe Joshua wrote it in later just to make sure people understood Moses' temperament, Moses' attitude. That would kind of make sense. If you remember the last chapter of Deuteronomy, uh, describes the death and burial of Moses. And most scholars think Joshua probably wrote that. Maybe somebody else even. We don't know for sure, but not Moses. Other Hebrew scholars have said, well, you know what? The Hebrew word translated meek or humble, which I think in all the translations I've seen, that's the translation. But I've seen scholars that said could be translated miserable. And if that's the case, <laughs> the verse would be saying, now the man Moses was very miserable more than all the people are on the face of the earth. He was miserable. And we've already seen that hinted at before, you know, when Moses got so depressed. So the idea would be like Moses is at his lowest point. Even Aaron and Miriam now are questioning him. He's the most miserable man on earth. And so that makes some sense. Of course, ultimately, we know the Holy Spirit is the one who caused Moses to write this down. So if Moses wrote it down, he could have caused Moses to write down that he was humble and meek. <laughs> And I can use my little imagination a little bit and picture Moses maybe protesting with God a little bit and saying, Lord, if I write down that I'm humble, I'm going to sound anything but humble. I'm not going to sound very humble. And I can almost imagine the Lord saying, Moses, if I say you're humble, trust me, you're humble. Write it down. <laughs> anyway, it's there and it's true. In verses 4 through 16 of chapter 12, God rebuked Miriam and Aaron for their insubordination. And God gave Miriam leprosy for seven days to make his point absolutely clear. Aaron eventually expressed their genuine sorrow and repentance for what they had done, and Moses prayed for Miriam, and God took away her leprosy. At the end of chapter 12, the Israelites have moved from Hazaroth on up to the wilderness of Paran, and then on up to Kadesh Barnea. See it there at the top of that ellipse, there around the wilderness there at the very top. 
And something very significant happens there that we need to take just a little time to read some of it. It's in chapter 13, beginning at verse 27. Moses has sent spies into the land, and they've come back, and they're giving their report. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. That means a race of huge men, giants. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against this people. They are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. They're kind of exaggerating things. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Chapter 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So after all the miracles and all the promises that God had made, and against the counsel of men like Moses and Joshua and Caleb, the people simply refused to trust God. The enemies looked too great and too fierce, and they felt too small and too weak. And of course, they paid a high price. Verse 10 tells us that just as they were about to stone Joshua and Caleb, God intervened. He told Moses he could destroy all these people. Just start over right now. Now, I believe what God's doing here is testing Moses. And Moses does pass the test because Moses intercedes for the people. He says, please don't destroy them. That's going to make you look bad, God. For the sake of your great name, don't just kill them right now. And God spared the people for the time being. In verse 20 of chapter 14, we read these very ominous words, though. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. So they've come to the very edge of the promised land. And now, because of their lack of faith, they're going to have to turn around. They, they, they're not going to get to go on. They've got to turn around, head back into the wilderness. 
Verse 25 says, Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. You got to go back. And in verse 29, he says, Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who crumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. This turns out to be a major warning for all of us, and God underlines it in his scripture more than once. About 450 years after this event, David wrote the words to the 95th Psalm, and he's talking about this particular moment in Israel's history. Look at these words. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we're the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Listen, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then in the New Testament, about 1500 years after this event that we're reading about here in Numbers, the writer of Hebrews quoted these words of David, and he includes a pretty lengthy commentary. We're not going to have time to read it all right now, but lots of very serious warnings for the readers of Hebrews in, in chapters 3 and 4. You might want to read both those chapters. Let me just read a little of it, though. Verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You hear how God's underlining this again in Psalms and then in Hebrews? Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And he goes on with that commentary for several more verses, way down into, into chapter 4. And I think for God to record this event so vividly here in Numbers, and then have David comment on it in the Psalms, and then have the writer of Hebrews comment on it so extensively, he means for us to take it very seriously. Sin is deceitful. Refusing to trust God is deadly, and many people's hearts are hardened by that deceitfulness, and it leads to destruction and death. He's not talking about losing your salvation here. We won't go into that right now. He's talking about the fact that if you're truly saved, you're going to endure to the end, but there are a lot of people in our midst who aren't truly saved. How do we know that's true? Well, for one thing, from every now and then, some of them get saved. <laughs> some of them realize, I've been in church all my life, but I've never really trusted Christ. And they finally trust Christ. And there are other people who leave it and walk away from it. And John said very clearly in his first letter, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifested that they were not all of us. That's what God's warning us about here. 
So over the next 40 years, all the people over the age of 20 died in the wilderness, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And on top of that, the 10 spies who turned the people's hearts away from the Lord and from Moses and Joshua and Caleb, God put them to death immediately. Now, when the Israelites heard all this and saw all this, and when the truth of God's judgment began to sink in on them, some of them decided, okay, I'm going to change my mind and go on and fight the Amalekites right now. We'll fight the Canaanites right now. We'll take the can. We'll go take the land right now. And Moses said, you can't now. God's already made a decision here. If you, if you go back now to try to take the land, you'll be fighting against God. That's not God's will for you at this point. Judgment's been issued. Judgment's been given. But you know what they did? In the rebellious spirits, thinking they knew better, they went up anyway. And of course, 14, chapter 14, verse 45, we learn they were soundly defeated. It's very ironic. When God was with them, they thought they couldn't do it. Now that God's clearly not with them, they decided they could do it. Isn't that strange how we're wired like that? That's sin. They just not learned to pay attention to God. They just went with their own emotions, their own logic, their own desires. And guys, you know this as well as I do. This is very, very common today. It's very, very foolish. And it's very, very destructive. We'll stop here. Let's pray about that. Father, thank you so much for putting these incredible scriptures in your word, causing Moses to write these things down as they began this journey through the wilderness. Lord, thank you for using these things in your word, these events that happened, these accounts of, of all these incredible things that went on with your people and how they rebelled and how they did not trust you and how they tried to trust their own logic and their own wisdom and their own emotions and, and their, how faulty their memories were. Lord, thank you for using all these things to teach us to not be like them, to teach us to keep our focus on you, to trust you, to wait on you, to, to believe you to go with you, to stand firm with you. Lord, we want to learn well the lessons you're teaching us from these wonderful passages of Scripture. So thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you most of all for Jesus who died for us so that we could have this relationship with you. In his mighty name, amen.